have my slides up. Thank you. So we're looking at Dr. Luke's health manual, a sight for sore eyes. And remember this character? Snoopy. Snoopy? That's right. A cartoon series developed in America by a Christian. Snoopy. And there's a great book that my father had in his shelves that I read as a young boy called The Gospel According to Snoopy. And this famous uh, Snoopy character famously said this, A watched kitchen door never opens. A watched kitchen door never Never opens. And there was a, the cartoon was he was sitting on his on his top of his um, top of his kennel, looking at the kitchen, waiting for the door to open. And the whole cartoon series was upside down beside the kennel, looking at the the kitchen door. And the kitchen door just refused to open. And so he says, "A watched kitchen door never opens." And perhaps sometimes you've been like that yourself. You're waiting for something to arrive, something to happen in your life. No matter, but no matter how hard you peer down the street, the postman never comes. The Amazon van never arrives. You're desperate, you're peering, you're looking, your eyes are straining, but what you're looking for doesn't seem to be on the horizon. Nothing happens. All you end up having is sore eyes. Arthur was 75 years old and played gold ever played golf every day since his retirement, 15 years beforehand. And one day he arrived home looking very upset. That's it, he yelled to his wife. I'm giving up golf. My eyesight has been some, become so bad that whenever I hit the ball, I can never see where it has landed. His wife sympathized and made him a hot cup of tea. And she sat down beside him on the sofa and said, why don't you take my brother John with you and give it one more try? John, that's no good said Arthur, John's 85 years old, how's he going to help me? He may be 85, said his wife, but his eyesight is perfect. And so the next day, Arthur and John went down the golf course to play another round of golf. And, and Arthur teed up, took a mighty swing and squinted down the fairway to see where the ball had landed. And of course, he couldn't see where it was. So he turned to his brother-in-law, John, and said, John, did you see where the ball went? Of course I did, said John. I've got perfect eyesight. Great, he said, and where is it? And John said, I don't remember. <laughs> Our reading of Luke chapter 2 is about an old man who's been waiting for decades to see someone, for someone to arrive, squinting into the distance for someone special. He was looking out day by day for the arrival of this very, very special child. And his name was Simeon. And we're told that he's an old man enjoying great communication. An old man enjoying great communication. If you want any indication that age is not a barrier to being successful and effective in the kingdom of God, Simeon is your example. Just look at him. He pops into the New Testament a narrative for these few verses only in the Gospel of Luke. We know nothing of his background, of his parents, or even of his role. Although it's been suggested, quite rightly, that he must have been a priest because of, his, because of what he's doing, the function of him being in the temple and receiving the presented Lord Jesus. Here's an old man who had walked these temple precincts for many, many years as a priest. 
We're told in verse 25 that there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Like the prophetess Anna, who appears in the later verses, 36 to 40 in this chapter, and is described as of a great age in verse 36, Simeon was waiting for something before he died. He had a goal, a single purpose, and that was to see God's promised salvation, the Messiah. He'd read texts like Isaiah 7 that spoke of a child being born, of a child called Emmanuel, and he was looking for this God, looking for God with us, this child that bore this wonderful name. We're told in verse 26, he'd been given a staggering promise by God. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. I wonder what you want to see this morning. I wonder if you're like Simeon, if you're waiting to see God, to see the salvation of your God, the promised consolation, the peace of God. But I want you to see not just Simeon in this passage and his waiting, I want you to see his relationship. Because he's a man with great communication with God. Not in any generic sense, but in the sense that he would be physically moved by the Spirit. He was listening to the Spirit in such a way that when God prompted him, he moved. My father, he was, did national service for three years when he was a young man. And he told me a story that he, was, he once came back and, and missed his train, and he was walking back to Lincolnshire with his kit bag over his shoulder. It's about two o'clock in the morning, and he said a prayer. He said, Father, if I don't get to my station by the morning, I'm going to be charged for being AWOL, for being late. And he said this prayer as he walked along the, the side of the road carrying his kit bag. And suddenly a car pulled up. And the man rolled down the window and says, can I give you a lift? And he says, yes, two o'clock in the morning. And so he got into the car and this man drove him all the way to his airfield in Lincolnshire and dropped him up well before the time he had to be back. And when he was driving him in the, in the car, my father said, what are you doing out at two o'clock in the morning? He says, well, I couldn't sleep. And God prompted me to get up and get into the car. And he drove and found my father at the moment he was uttering a prayer to God. If you're in good communication with God, you will be prompted by God. You will hear God. Not that there will be a big sign in the sky, but sometimes you'll be moved by God. You'll sense in your spirit you need to be somewhere and doing something because spirit-filled people are moved by God's spirit because they enjoy great communication with God. It's not something freaky. He didn't grow two heads and wander around uttering things no one understood. He was simply doing something practical. In three verses, three times in this passage, this man, Simeon, this old man, is mentioned someone who was in touch with the Holy Spirit. We're told here, verse 25, the Holy Spirit was on him. Verse 26, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. Verse 27, moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. He was a man who enjoyed a good connection with his Father God. We shouldn't get freaked out by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is part of the manifestation of God himself. One of the, it's the third person of the Trinity. The way God reveals himself to us in our spirits, because we are spiritual beings. And God also is a spiritual being. That's the eternal part of your nature, your body, soul, and spirit. So when God communicates to us, he communicates on that spiritual level. It is natural for us, because that's the way God made us that way. 
The reason why conversation so often about the Holy Spirit is contentious is because Satan wants it to be contentious. Because he doesn't want spirit-filled Christians. He doesn't want Christians moved by the Spirit. He doesn't want Christians prompted by the Spirit. He doesn't want Christians living in the power of the Spirit. Because that scares Satan. That's the reason why this is controversial. Not because it's not, it's not in the Bible. Simeon was a man in great communication with God. An old man who God moved through. The Bible says something quite wonderful. It says this in Psalm 37. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desire of your heart. The desire of your heart. And what was the desire of Simeon's heart? The desire of Simeon's heart was to see more of God's salvation. Was to hold God's salvation in his hands and behold it with his eyes. And God gave him that desire because that was what he because he desired first of all God himself he delighted in God when we delight in God when we put God first in our life when we live for God day by day God will give us these delights because we'll become in great communication with God and endowed with his spirit and able to be moved and used by him so we're told that wonderful passage imagine that Simeon took him in his arms and praised God. This old man holds the Son of God in his arms. He sees the salvation of God. He praises God. The next thing we see in this passage is a young child bringing great consolation. A young child bringing great consolation. Jesus being brought into the temple on this particular day was simply a matter of obedience. The obedience of Mary and Joseph. The Old Testament was very specific on the actions of a Jewish mother upon the birth of a child. If it was a boy, then the first thing that needed to happen was on the eighth day, that child had to be circumcised. But the child couldn't be circumcised in the temple. The rabbi or priest would come to you because... Unfortunately, when you give birth as a woman, you become unclean, ceremonially unclean. If it was a boy, you get, you, you, the boy was sacrificed, sorry, sacrificed, the boy was circumcised on the eighth day, and then the agreement between God and man was seen on his body, following Genesis chapter 17, where the, the first covenant between Abraham and God, Abraham was told this, you are to undergo, undergo circumcision, and it will be a sign of a covenant between me and you. It was physically a marking of the body to show that you belong to God. And so we're told in verse 21, on the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. So Jesus was circumcised. But that wasn't enough. Two other rites were very, very important as part of that child's presentation. The first was the purification of the mother. You see, childbirth was a messy business. It is a messy business. And for Jewish mothers, it made you ceremonially unclean. If you gave birth to a boy, you were unclean for a period of 40 days. If you gave, uh, gave birth to a female, you were unclean for twice that, for 80 days. You can read about this in Leviticus chapter 12 and verses 1 to 5. And so Mary obeys God in verse 22. 
When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. She was presenting him to the Lord to be purified of the birth of her son, of her child. So we know, therefore, that this is exactly 40 days after the birth of Jesus. When Simeon holds Jesus in his hands, it's a child that's exactly 40 days old. But we're not finished that, not finished yet. As Mary's child was a boy, he needed to be redeemed. Every male child, the first male child born in a family, had to be redeemed. There was a ceremony, and you had to go to the temple and pay a tax on that child to redeem it. You can read about this in Numbers 18. You must redeem every firstborn son and every firstborn male of unclean animals. When they're a month old, you must redeem them at the redemption price set at five shekels of silver. Five shekels of silver, which was a weight measurement. Um, and they had to give that to the priests. It wasn't just, though, the five shekels of silver for the redemption price. We're told here in verse 23, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated. That's the consecration. And to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. This, in fact, is the offering of the poor. What's actually said in Leviticus is when a child is born, you had to offer a lamb and a dove. And if you couldn't afford a lamb and a dove, you could offer two doves. And if you couldn't afford two doves, you offered the offering of the poor. And the offering of the poor was two pigeons. Jesus was born into a poor family. He wasn't a wealthy family. He wasn't a family born with a silver spoon in his mouth. He was born to a poor family. So the time the family had given the five shekels, they had also, all they could afford to do is buy the two pigeons. And that's exactly what Mary and Joseph bought. You read about that in Leviticus chapter 12. I wonder if you can get a picture of what's happening here. This isn't like a service of dedication in the Baptist church. He doesn't get to come along and have a great celebration of the birth of a child. Before Mary and Joseph could celebrate the birth of their child, there was all these hoops that had to be jumped through. Jesus had to be circumcised on the eighth day. Mary had to be purified for giving birth to a child for 40 days. She couldn't enter a synagogue or the temple. She couldn't touch anything sacred because she was ceremonially unclean. She had to offer a lamb, but she couldn't afford a lamb, so she offers a, pi uh, um, she offers a pigeon as an offering to the Lord and also offers a, another pigeon as a sin offering. This was the requirements of the law. Only by doing this can she come into the temple and present Jesus. Only by going through all these hoops is she able to come into the presence of God. Are you getting the picture here? What's really happening? All these barriers she's got to go through with the Son of God. The barriers put up. The boy needs to be circumcised and his body marked. The mother needs to, mother needs to be purified. The first male child needs to be redeemed. And a lamb needs to die and be sacrificed. What an irony. A lamb for the Lamb of God. This was the first covenant. This was the first agreement with God. This was the pain and the price and the difficulty of being a follower of God in the first century. Without that, the way was barred to Mary. It was barred to Joseph. And even bizarrely, barred to Jesus, the Son of God. 
That was the burden that weighed upon the shoulders of Simeon as he walked in that, those temple precincts day after day, night after night, for year upon year, decade upon decade. He'd worn those flagstones, and as those flagstones beneath his feet were worn, his spirit was worn. How much more has he got to work to bring about the peace of God into the lives and the believers of Israel? It was endless. Because as soon as you've done a sacrifice for your sin, what do you do? Your brain thinks. You see something you like, you shouldn't like. You get tempted. You do wrong things. In other words, as soon as you walk down the steps of the temple, having made your sacrifices for that week or that month, you have to go back up the steps and make another sacrifice and another sacrifice. And it was wearing upon Simeon. He was worn out by it. He was looking for the answer. And what was the answer? It wasn't the continual and the perpetual sacrifices of lambs. It was a sacrifice of one lamb, of one person, Jesus Christ. One person, one sacrifice. Now, huge burden, that huge weight upon the shoulders of humankind was broken. And the temple curtain is what it's torn into, and the way finally is open to God. That is what Simeon was looking for. And when he held that child in his arms, he saw it. Here is the Messiah. The weight of the law upon the shoulders of Simeon as an old priest suddenly fell away from him because he suddenly realized it was all going to end because here is the Son of God. Here is the child, the Lamb of God. What do you read in the Bible? Galatians 4 verse 4. God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Jesus was born under the law, not above it. He was under the law. And we see here that Jesus was under the law so he may break the law and he may change the law. That's why Simeon holds the, the little child in his arms. He says this, My eyes have seen your salvation. Who is his salvation? It's a light to the Gentiles. We're told that in verse 32. Sorry, verse 31. A light of revelation. It's a universal light for all people, not just for the Israeli nation, but for all people. He is the Messiah of the world, the light of the world. And the way it would finally become open for Jesus to become what Simeon was, the priest, the way between God and man. And so what? Finally, Simeon can depart. He can go in peace. He can lay down his mantle. He can die. A man who's done his job and now the new priest, the royal priest, the son of God, takes over. This beautiful song of Simeon is one of the four songs in the book of Luke, including songs like the Benedictus and the Glorious and Excelsius. And in the Anglican Church, it's called the Nun Dimittis, which is taken from the Latin for the first few words in Latin, which means quite literally, let your servant depart in peace. And if you were to go to an Anglican Church tonight, you would sing that. It's sung in the Sung Eucharist. It's sung, it's said every night as part of evening prayer. It's a lovely passage that speaks about this man, Simeon, holding the child and knowing finally that his duties were done and he could retire and die in peace because God's peace had arrived in the world. 
And so finally we see in this whole passage a future prophet bringing great consternation. A future prophet bringing great consternation. See, the problem with peace is you've got to want it, haven't you? I don't think many of you here would have been there and heard that famous speech as Neville Chamberlain walked down the aircraft in London and held the papers above his head and said, peace in our time, referring to this paper, this document that said that we weren't going to go to war with Germany. It was not worth the paper it was written on. Because peace is only valuable if everyone wants it. But Hitler didn't want peace. So while the British people may have wanted peace, and Chamberlain certainly wanted peace, Hitler wanted to march into Czechoslovakia and Hungary, and later on into Poland. He wanted world domination. He didn't want peace. And peace, the problem with peace is this. Unless you want peace, we won't get it. If you don't want peace, you can't get it. And as, as Simeon looks at his child Jesus, he turns, to Moses, Moses, he turns to Joseph and Mary and says this. He says, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the faults of many hearts will be revealed. You see, not everyone is looking for God. Many seek to be their own God, to put their own selves first, to seek their own will in everything. They're not looking for God's peace. They're not wandering tirelessly in the, in the courts of God. They're not moved by the Spirit. They have little regard for God or His Son. For them, Jesus is a problem. We often think of the term Antichrist as just one individual in, in Revelation. But in fact, when you read 1 John, uh, you'll find that Antichrist can refer to anyone for whom Christ, who is anti to Christ, anti to Jesus. In fact, in 1 John, it speaks of an anti-Christian spirit. We've got the Spirit of God moving through God's people, but you can have an anti-Christian spirit moving upon people who aren't God's people. Jesus himself said to us, in Matthew 12, verse 30, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so Simeon told Mary that Jesus would cause the rising and falling of many in Israel, and will be a sign that will be spoken against. So the faults of the hearts of many will be revealed. You see, if you don't love light, and you prefer darkness, you're not going to love Jesus, who's the son of... and reject Jesus. The Antichrist is those who reject the light, preferring for Jesus. And so John writes in John 3, verse 19, this is the verdict. The light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. There's no middle ground with Jesus. There's no middle ground. You cannot sit on the fence with Jesus Christ. You either follow him or you reject him. That's what the Bible says. You're either with me or you're against me. You can't be on the fence, well, I'm not sure about it. I think I'll, you know, I'll, I'll decide later on when I'm older before I die. Hoping I don't get hit by a car, of course. There's no middle ground. C.S. Lewis wrote about the trilemma in his book, Mere Christianity. And I'm going to read it to you now. It says, he says this in his book. He says, I'm trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's what people say. This is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said 
would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he'll be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, and you can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not call him with any patronizing nonsense and speak of him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to set the view that he was and is God. You see, it makes no sense to describe Jesus as a moral teacher and to sit on the fence, the so-called middle ground, because there's no middle ground with Jesus. He's either mad, because what he says is stupid, he's either devilish, because he's actually lying and pretending to be something he's not, or he is true and the Son of God. They're the only reactions you can have to Jesus Christ. Jesus said, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Jesus, the one thing Jesus is not, is nice. And that's a problem for us as British people because we like nice things. We are nice people. We like the word nice. We even have a biscuit named nice. But Jesus isn't nice. He came to die for you, and dying on a cross is not nice. He came to show us the way from, to God and showing his light into our lives. When he shines his light into your life or my life, we realize that we're not nice. He was killed because of the religious powers of his days, saw him as a threat to their religion and their hold on power. He wasn't killed because he was nice. People don't crucify a nice man. And we would not need, he would not need to die for us if we were nice people. Nice is not a biblical word. Jesus isn't nice. He is the Son of God. He is, is the consolation of Israel, the peace of God, but only if you want to be at peace with God. If you want to fight with God, then you have to go through his Son, Jesus Christ. That's why Simeon said he will cause the rise and others to fall. There's no middle ground. So how about us this morning here in CBC? Are we moved by the Spirit of God to seek Jesus in the temple forecourts? Are we straining our eyes to see the salvation of our God, to see more of God, more of his salvation in our lives and in this town in which God has placed us? Are we longing for God's consolation, for his peace? Do you wish to hold the Son of God and praise him like Simeon? Do you want to hold God close to you, like Simeon did? Or do you want to hold God at arm's length? Keep him away, because he, he risks your will and your, your control of your own life. But decision is ours to make, and the future is ours to face. We must learn from Simeon, a man moved by God's Spirit, and seeking to hold Jesus 
Because it's only when you hold Jesus in your arms that you really know peace and you really know the consolation of Israel. Then you will be able to say, just like Simeon, may your servant now depart in peace. Only when you know Jesus as your Savior and Lord can you die in any certainty and peace in your life because you know that the way is open for you and the way is open for me. Let's be like Simeon. Let's hold the Lord Jesus in our arms. Let's be moved by his spirit in our lives, in good communication in our hearts. And let's go his way in peace. Let's pray.